Philippians chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. We're talking again about joy. Man, it sure seems that this joy thing is pretty important, doesn't it? This is no minor secondary issue for Paul. Simple question to start with. Why did Jesus come at all? He gives us actually a number of explicit purpose statements uh, for his coming throughout the Gospels. Uh, Luke 10, 10, for example. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to live and to die to save. He gave his life to give us life. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants you to have life. What kind of life? What will it look like? What will be the nature of this Christian life? That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Well, why else did Jesus come? Are there any other purpose statements? How about Luke 4.43? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. For this is why I came to preach. So yes, he came first and foremost to save his people by dying for his people. But Jesus also came to preach and to teach his people. Why? To what end? Well, how about John 15, 11? These things, he says to his apostles, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Christian, Jesus came to save you, Jesus came to give you life, and Jesus came to give you joy. His joy. Full, complete joy. So brothers and sisters, God himself cares about your joy. He wants you to experience life, abundant life, joyful life. And so in the passage we've had before us, we have been given an imperative. We have been given a command. This is part of God's Law, rejoice, be joyful. As we looked at last week, that's a pretty good law. Right? Our duty to God is delight. The command is joy. He wants happiness and joy for us. Not passing circumstantial happiness, but true joy, biblical joy, gospel joy, which we've defined as the settled conviction and confidence that all is well, or since the word for joy is based on the word for grace, we have said that to be joyful is simply to be glad for grace. We are glad because of grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us. Therefore, we are glad. We are content. We are convinced that all is well because of Christ. And that's why Paul doesn't just say rejoice in some stuff or something randomly or abstractly. He says rejoice in the Lord. It is only in him that we will find joy because, verse 8, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One of my main uh, convictions, one of my main desires, kind of echoing what Steve said, one of my main passions in preaching is to convince you of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So we know joy as we know Jesus. We grow in joy as we grow in Jesus. And so we looked at only one point last week. We rejoice by rehearsing the gospel. 
That gospel that is Jesus. The good news about who he is and what he has done to rescue us. So rehearse it. Remember it. Meditate on it. It's clear that we're commanded to rejoice. So we're now trying to answer the question, how? How do we do this? How can I rejoice? And we start and took a whole week there because it has to start there with the gospel. And we're going to look at that again because it's so important. But then we're also going to move on and look at verse two to try and continue to answer the how question. We're not going to get to verse three yet. It was just impossible. There's just too much. I can't rush it. So in verse two, we're going to transition and see that we also rejoice by rejecting false gospels. We also rejoice by rejecting false doctrine. I really want you to pay attention to verse 2 as I read it to you in a second. I really want you to feel the contrast and the tension between verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, woohoo, joy, rejoice, no trouble. Verse 2, beware, look out, dogs, evildoers. It's arguably maybe the most intense verse from the pen of Paul right on the heels of this command to rejoice. Why is that? What is the connection between verse 1 and verse 2? Don't forget something that we talked about last week. You are what you think. You are what you think. What you think and believe determines everything, and that makes doctrine really, really important. Doctrine just comes from the Latin word that means teaching or instruction. Doctrine is simply what we believe. It's what we think. And I want to make the case this morning, because I think that this is the case that Paul is making, is that doctrine is for joy. Doctrine is for joy. To experience joy, you need good, true doctrine. So we're going to go back a bit to last week. I want to get practical. We want to look at how to rejoice by filling our mind with true doctrine. And then we'll look at how we rejoice by then rejecting that which is opposed to true doctrine. False doctrine. Let's read. And we'll see if I can make all of that clear. This is kind of still one passage. Let me read all of 1 through 3. Again, we're going to be focusing mostly on verses 1 and then primarily on uh, verse 2. But let me give you the whole thing because it all kind of goes together. I'll read for you Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word for you today. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision." who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If you would bow with me and let's begin with the word of God. Father, I am very thankful for your word. Father, right now I am very thankful that it is your word that is living and active. It is your word that is sufficient. It is your word that is more than able to save sinners change hearts, to comfort, and to encourage struggling saints. So, Father, as I come before this text week, Father, I come fully dependent upon you. Father, I pray that your word would do its work. I pray that I would do nothing to stand in the way of your 
word. I pray that this preaching would truly be exposition, Father, as we are exposed to the word that is so powerful through which you work your will. And so I ask simply now by your Holy Spirit that you would work through your words. Father, in spite of my weakness, Father, I pray that you would demonstrate your strength. Father, show us Christ. Draw us to him. Engage our hearts and our minds with Jesus Christ through your word this morning. We ask and we pray. Amen. All right, so I do want to go back to our first point from last week. We talked about rejoice by rehearsing the gospel or rejoice by filling your mind with good doctrine. And I'm comfortable doing this because Paul does this. I'm taking this idea from Paul's statement there in verse 1 where he says that he has no problem writing the same things to them. I have no problem repeating the same things to you. If you pay attention to my sermons, my preaching, you'll notice that I repeat things a lot because it takes us often a lot of hearings to hear and understand things. So, for example, I talked last week a lot about uh, your need to meditate on the Word of God. Well, how many of you actually took steps to more meditate on the Word of God this week? Maybe some of you, probably not all of you. So we need to hear some of this again. We need to hear these things regularly. So Paul has no problem reminding them and rehearsing things they already know. And as we saw, the most important thing that must be rehearsed and that we must be reminded of regularly is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God for salvation. So we said that one of the keys to rejoicing was regularly rehearsing the gospel by meditating on the word of God. Amen. That's great. We have to rejoice. How do we rejoice? We do it by meditating on the gospel and God's word. But that raises another question that I just kind of realized we didn't even tackle last week. Well, how do we meditate on the gospel in God's word? How do we set our mind on things that are above, on true doctrine? How do we actually and practically do this? So I just want to share with you briefly a couple of practical things that I have found Helpful. We're trying to do what Psalm 1 says. We're trying to develop in the Christian life the lost practice of meditating on God's law, His Word, day and night. And as we said last week, you are meditating on something always. Your mind is always filled with something. Biblical meditation is filling your mind with the things of God which is so much more important than we think. And I'm emphasizing it because, again, you are what you think. And the world is doing everything it can to get you to think one way. It is constantly assaulting you through the media. And we need to be so much more aware of this today than ever in the past because now the world has constant, uninterrupted access to our minds through the phones that we carry around with us and stare at constantly. I just, have you ever done this on the train? Just look and stop on the train in the morning on the way to work and see how many people's heads are down, how many of them are looking at a phone versus talking to one another or thinking or actually reading a book. I flipped on a few minutes of the Giants-Jets game the other night. Football season is close. It's close. And the camera panned to the crowd for a minute, and it seemed that about 75% of the people at the game were looking down at their phones. You know, I know it's preseason and it doesn't matter, but, but give me a break. You went to the game to watch the game, and yet they're all watching their phone. And again, I know this is getting tired, probably. I know I'm growing into somewhat of a get-off-my-lawn old man when it comes to phones and social media, but I think it's serious. 
And I think it's far more serious than most of us are aware. And it's because of this point. It's because of the importance of your mind and of what you set it on and of what you think. We take in hours and hours a day of the world's input and then we wonder and we're confused why we struggle and doubt and despair. We know when we think more about celebrities and TV shows. We obsess over politics. We meditate on all the people on Instagram who are more beautiful, more successful, or more wealthy than us. And that cannot but help have a major impact on our lives. Influence is everything. Thus the need for Christians to rediscover the practice of biblical meditation. It is critical uh, to our spiritual health. So how do you do it? There's a lot that can be said, but let me give you kind of just two main pointers, two very simple things that aren't very profound that I do to help me kind of exercise this practice. We've said that meditation is more than reading. On his law, he meditates day and night, not reads. But this should be obvious. While meditation is more than reading, it is not less than reading. Meditation is impossible without reading, for it is the reading of God's word that furnishes the material for the meditation. So the first step is pretty simple. Read the word. And Christian, I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to be guilt trippy. I'm not trying to be manipulating. But you simply have to read the word of God. Why? Why wouldn't you? It is God speaking to his children. It is living and active. It is able to make you wise for salvation. It is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training that you may be complete. You cannot rejoice without God's word. So read it. Lack of joy is so frequently connected to lack of word. It's that simple. They come to me as the pastor or Mike as the biblical counselor wanting some sort of brilliant insight and sometimes it's just, hey, you have no connection or engagement with the means of grace or of how God speaks and how God works. What do you expect? So read it. Now listen, read it in the morning. That's not commanded in scripture. I can't require that of you. I'm not a morning person. I hate mornings. Uh, my bedtime for the longest time was three in the morning. I switched it to two in the morning a number of years ago. It was there for a long time. Uh, I'm trying, I've been at one o'clock for the last couple of years. But I'm trying really hard to get it more to kind of 12 or 12.30 so that I am more rested and refreshed and ready to get up early and then get going first thing with God's word. And it doesn't have to be in the morning. It doesn't have to be first. But I'd highly recommend it because you're setting the tone for the rest of your day. You could do email. You could do Facebook. You could do other things first. What about God's word as the first thing that our mind engages with in the morning? And it doesn't have to be complicated. This morning, Psalm 130. I just spent some time in Psalm 130. And I wasn't planning on using Psalm uh, 130 as the call to worship this morning. But I spent time reading God's word and then meditating on it. And then it connected so well to what Henry was teaching on from Matthew 5. That then all of a sudden it was just I had to speak about God's word. That's, that's meditating. Take a psalm, you read it, slow down, and think about it. Quick trick that I use to help me meditate. If you've read a bunch of verses, it's pretty easy to forget all those verses. Uh, right now we're reading through John with the girls at night before bed, family worship. So what we do, sometimes it's a long passage, 
and I know they're probably missing a lot of it, and I know that they're going to forget most of it. So we pick one verse. I find one key verse in that chapter for them to memorize. One big idea that I want to stick in their brains. We're trying to shape their mind by filling it with the Word of God. So chapter 1 is easy. 1-1, one, one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They've got that in their head now. They know something about the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I cheated and did two verses from chapter 1. They've also got John 1, 29, nice and simple. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now they have locked in their brains something not just about the person of Christ, but about the work of Christ. So we've read and then we've focused and then we've stuck it in their brain. That's meditation. So Bible reading, do it. Meditate on God's word then. But here's what I do. I pick one verse, because I know I'm so scatterbrained, and I know I'm so forgetful, and I have to write things down. I'm not old. I know you don't believe that, but I'm getting older, and my brain doesn't work like it used to. I don't now, if I don't write things down, I will not remember it, right? So I read something, I pick one key truth that I do not want to forget, and I write it down. Write it on a note card. Write it. Do anything. But then what you do is you take that one key truth, you think on it, you write it down, you consider it, and then you take it with you for the rest of the day. So even if I forget everything else, there's one thing that I know that is in my head, that is informing my brain and my thoughts and how I approach life uh, throughout that day. At least something from God's word is now stuck in my brain and I spend the time batting it around and being convicted of it and then forgetting it and then reminding myself of it and rejoicing in it. Pick one thing from your reading, write it down, and then take that with you for the rest of the day. That's meditation. It's really, really simple. And it's a basic practice that will help that word stick. Mythical meditation is really quite simple. And so much of it is simply being actively engaged with what you are reading and being intentional about interacting deeply with it. Another tool that I like to use, I can't remember where I got this from, uh, so this is not original uh, with me, but it's to take three questions of the text. I'm often doing psalms in the morning, so this is often with a psalm. Ask yourself three basic questions. Ask yourself, What is something that this teaches me about God for which I can praise him? What is something that this teaches me about God for which I can praise him? What is something that this reveals about me that is wrong for which I can confess and repent? What is something that this reveals about me that is wrong for which I can confess and repent? And then third, what is something out of this text that I can pray and then ask God for? Three very simple, basic questions. But having to stop and slow down and answer those three questions forces me now to think more deeply about the text. And in so doing, it drives those texts down deeper. It impacts in an entirely different way. And then now all of a sudden, I've got the fuel and the fodder for my prayer. So now I've meditated on something about God for which I can praise him. And I can turn that into prayer. Father, praise you. Uh, for this, that, or the other, for who you are and for what you have done. And then I can turn that to confession. Father, I am a sinner. Here specifically, according to this text, is how I have sinned. Father, forgive me for my sin. Father, now then help me. And I'm asking and I'm petitioning. You see the difference? I've now read and I've meditated and I've prayed. The meditation is this key step that we have almost entirely lost in the church today. So don't just read and pray. Read, meditate, 
pray. The blessed man is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. You rejoice by rehearsing the gospel, by remembering who God is and what he has done, by filling your mind with the things of God and then letting those good and glorious truths shape who you are and how you look at the world and how you respond to it. Brothers and sisters, you cannot rejoice without the gospel. It is no problem. It is no trouble for me to remind you of these things regularly. You cannot rejoice without God's word. You rejoice in the Lord through the word. So read it. Think on it. And then do it. Brothers and sisters, this week, my, my challenge to you is to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Take one thing, the writing it down and thinking on it, or the asking the three questions. Do it. And meditate on God's Word. Don't just hear these things. Uh, Do these things and fill your mind with the things of God. If you are lacking and joyless, man, this is almost always the main culprit. Have you cut yourself off from the means of grace? Have you cut yourself off from God's word? Read and remember, rejoice by filling your mind with the things of God because doctrine is for joy. We get it from God's word. So that's all review. That's all verse one. That's why there's only one other point this week. Go on to point number two, verse number two. We rejoice also then by rejecting false doctrine. All right, so again, let's, let's focus again on the great contrast between the tone of verse one and the tone of verse two. Rejoice, brothers, verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I mean, that's pretty intense. This is arguably the strongest and most intense sentence in all of Paul's letters. I can't prove that objectively. Uh, Paul speaks stronger for longer in Galatians, uh, but in a a one-shot condensed burst of invective, this verse stands apart. And it sort of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? It catches you a bit off guard. Oh, Paul, calm down a little bit. Where did, that, where did that come from? And it's even better in the Greek. You know I love alliteration. It's not just an annoying Baptist pastor thing. Paul does it too. Paul loves alliteration. Three times you see it there. He says, look out. I like the King James says, the King James says, beware. Or some translations say, watch out. In Greek, the word is blepo. And so three times Paul repeats, blepete, blepete, blepete. And he's only warning them of one group of people, but he describes them with three names. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. But in the Greek, each one of those words starts with a kappa, with, with a K. Paul is using repetition and alliteration for effect to grab your attention and kind of jolt us into paying attention. There's a, there's a rhythm to his writing here, he says, blepete kunas, blepete kakus, blepete katatomain. And it's very, very uh, effective in the Greek. Beware, beware, beware. All imperatives, all commands. And so we go immediately. My transitions are sometimes poor. There is no transition here. So again, I'm just echoing Paul, right? We've got immediately from rejoice to beware. Why? Don't forget verse 8. Verse 8. Everything we're doing in verse 3. We're trying to get to verse 8. It's going to take us a long time. But we're working on it. Don't forget 
to Paul and to the Christian, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember, that is life. Paul has already said in 121 that to live is Christ. That means that to live is to know Christ. That's what Christianity is. And we discussed this last week. It's not just knowing about Christ. Uh, Lots of people know some facts about Jesus. Lots of people may even believe those facts about Jesus. But again, James 2, that is not faith. That is not what it means to know Christ. You may know something about Carolina basketball. You may know that Carolina blue is the prettiest color in existence. Ruth's kind of rocking a little bit uh, there. Uh, There's some Carolina blue around here. It's the best color. You may know number 23, Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time. You may know that we won the championship two years ago because I talked about it all the time. Great. Listen, that's not knowing Carolina basketball, right? I know Carolina basketball. I love it. I follow it. I think about it. I read about it. I watch it. I wear all the clothes. I'm wearing Carolina socks <laughs> right now. I just, I, it's getting close. I'm getting excited. I work my schedule around it. I don't just know some facts about Carolina basketball, but to some degree, I make my life, not idolatrously, I don't think anymore, um, but, but to some degree, I make my life about Carolina basketball. That's knowing. You know about Carolina basketball. I know Carolina basketball. So to make sure we're on the same page, when Paul says knowing Christ, he means loving Christ and living for Christ. When Romans 8.29 says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, it doesn't mean that God predestined those who he knew some stuff about. And it definitely doesn't mean that God looked forward down the tunnel of time to see who's going to pick me of their own free will then. All right, they picked me. Okay, I, I choose them. As if God responds to us in some way. As, we, as if we in our sin would ever choose God. We wouldn't. That's why his grace must be a choosing, initiating grace. That verse means none of that. When it says those whom he foreknew, it means those whom he foreloved. Adam knew Eve, right? The the term of the greatest intimacy, one flesh. It means those whom God sovereignly chose to set his love upon. To know is to love. So to know Christ is to love Christ. Knowing is more than knowing about, right? Does Does that make sense? So I want you to follow Paul's argument. If knowing Christ is of surpassing worth, if Christ is life, and thus true joy is only found in knowing him, that then means that anything that obscures knowing him, anything that gives a false knowledge of him, is of surpassing danger. Yes, knowing Christ is more than knowing about Christ, but it's not less than knowing about Christ. I cannot love something I do not know. 
Knowledge is first, foundational. I cannot claim to truly love my wife if I don't know anything about my wife. And you cannot claim to truly love Christ if you do not know anything about Christ. So listen, the knowledge is important, which means that anything that hinders true knowledge of Christ, anything that conveys and gives a false knowledge of Christ must be aggressively resisted and rejected. That's why Paul is so hot and bothered in verse 2. He wants nothing more than for the Philippians to know Christ and to find joy in Jesus. And so he wants nothing more than to protect them from false teaching that keeps them from knowing the Christ that is of surpassing value and thus then keeps them from finding that joy in him. Therefore, our second point, you rejoice by rejecting false doctrine. If doctrine is for joy, then you better make sure you get it right. This is, this is, just, this is why I'm so passionate and obnoxious about doctrine. I just am, and I'm always going to be, and you're just going to have to deal with that. It's really, really important. Doctrine gets a bad rap these days. Practically, even sometimes in the church, which just blows my mind. Doctrine divides. Oh, that's, that's silly. Um, no, there's just, that's just head knowledge. Uh, we, need, we need heart knowledge. No, remember, those are not biblical categories. Uh, the scripture never talks about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. It never talks about the longest distance in the world being 18 inches between the head and the heart. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, the problem is never head knowledge. Head knowledge is good. The question is, is there faith? Is there faith? Let's speak in scriptural categories. Is your knowledge now then combined with faith, with trust, and with love? You are what you think, which makes doctrine so, so important. I'll keep repeating it. Doctrine is for joy because doctrine is simply teaching. It is simply the knowledge of God. It's knowing who he is and what he has done. That's why it's so important that we get our doctrine Right. And it seems that the American church today just greatly lacks discernment. Just go look at the Christian bestseller list today. I basically probably wouldn't recommend anything on the Christian bestseller list. It's like Jesus calling, drawing circles. What's that circle book? Uh, the Circle Maker and Purpose. There's all these things. That it's just If you actually look at it and read it and compare it to Scripture, wait, wait a second. This is, this is garbage. We have lost discernment. We have lost the ability to recognize the true from the false, the good from the bad. Just because the name Jesus is attached to something doesn't make it Christian. Just because the name Jesus is attached to something doesn't make it true. Just because it's on TBN actually doesn't mean it has anything to do with the Trinity. The great irony is that there are people on TBN who um, adamantly deny and reject the Trinity. That's kind of ironic. Uh, they're on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and they don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, one is Pentecostals. Uh, just because it's a famous preacher doesn't mean he even knows Jesus. Just because it's on the Christian bestseller list doesn't mean it's even Christian. Discernment matters. Doctrine matters. We don't seem to take false teaching very seriously today. We're not supposed to name names. We're not supposed to call out error. We're just supposed to accept and affirm everyone as long as they say the name Jesus Sometimes, But look at verse 2. Paul seems to take false teaching very, very seriously. He warns about it. 
He calls it out. Look how strongly he speaks. He calls these guys dogs. You know, we're 2,000 years separated from that. Uh, don't think like dogs today. Don't think like the puppies and the pets that Americans spend over $72 billion a year on, an amount that is more than the combined GDP of the 39 poorest nations in the world. Just interesting. Just laying that out there. Uh, not, not dogs like, oh, he's so cute and cuddly, and dogs is man's best friend. No, this is dogs. Dogs were generally detested in the ancient Near Eastern world by Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, to the Jews, dogs were the epitome of unclean. When we think unclean on uh, the Mosaic Wall or the Jewish people, we think pigs. But notice the comparison that Jesus makes in Matthew 7, 6. He says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Dogs and pigs. They're the examples of uncleanness. And at least pigs aren't that violent or dangerous, I guess. I don't know, I don't know anything about pigs. Um, but dogs are worse because these dogs were not just unclean, but they were wild. They were dangerous. They were violent. They were scavengers. Again, that would just be bad enough to call someone a dog 2,000 years ago. But Paul's saying so much more than even that these false teachers are scary and dangerous because dog was also an insult that the Jewish people sometimes used to refer to the Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. They were unfit for the presence of God. So look at what Paul does. He takes that and he flips it on its head. And he says, no, no, no. It's actually you guys false teachers, who are the dogs? You are the ones who are unclean. You are the ones who are unfit for the presence of God. And he keeps going. It's not enough for Paul. He also then calls them evildoers. He doesn't want there to be any question. This is not, hey, you know, we have a minor difference of opinion here. You know, no, no, no big deal. You know, we're all, we're all on the same team. No, he says that this teaching, this False teaching, it's not just off, it's not just wrong, he says it's evil. False teaching is evil, right up there with the worst and most despicable things that we can think of. Paul lumps false teaching with that. And he's, he's just not messing around. He's not holding back. This teaching that he's warning them of is evil, plain and simple. So what in the world is it? And what's so bad about it? Well, look at the third description. This will tell us. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That phrase, those who mutilate the flesh, is actually one word in the Greek, and it's a wild word. We won't get into the details. If you're looking at the New American Standard, you'll see that it says, beware of the false circumcision, which contrasts what you'll see there in verse 3, where Paul says that Christians are the Circumcision, the true circumcision. These false teachers then are not the circumcision. They are the false circumcision. Kind of strange, right? Why in the world are we all of a sudden talking about circumcision? Uh, well, as I think you all know, uh, it was the religious rite. It was the sign of God's covenant with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We see God give this first to Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 11 says, you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Circumcision was a sign. 
And that's really important. It was just a sign. It was supposed to point to something else, right? Signs are never the point. Signs point to something else, to a deeper reality. But was that deeper reality? God tells us, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See that God has to do something to your heart. God has to do something first if you are going to love him. But the point is that it was never just about the physical circumcision alone. That was supposed to accompany and be a sign of the true circumcision, spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision didn't save anyone. It didn't really do anything. It was supposed to be a sign of what God had done, a sign of salvation, of God bringing a dead heart back to life. But even then, it was an old covenant sign. Can't get into all the text. I want to. I had to pull them all out. It's been fulfilled in Christ, thus no longer necessary, no longer binding for believers. So apparently, it seems that these false teachers are teaching the opposite of that fact, which means that we know who these guys are. These must be, in verse 2, the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were the great enemies of Paul throughout the New Testament. It seems that they just kind of followed Paul around. And once Paul moved on to another town, they would come in after him and they would begin correcting him and adding to his teaching. These were Jewish individuals who claimed to be converts, who claimed to be followers of Jesus. And so they would have said, yes, grace, uh, yes, faith, yes, Jesus. But there's something else. Paul hasn't given you the whole story. Let me, let me fill you in on what Paul left out. These evil-doing dogs were teaching that all Christians, including Gentiles, in addition to believing, believing in Jesus, also had to keep the Mosaic ceremonial law. Also had to keep doing all of those ceremonies prescribed in the Old Testament. So they needed to also then follow the clean eating laws. They needed to follow the other rituals. And most especially to truly follow Jesus, they needed to be circumcised. To truly be part of the people of God, you need to know Jesus and you need to keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. And it's that and that sets Paul off in verse 2. It's the same problem, and it's the same people he's addressing in Galatians, especially Galatians chapter 5. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. Do not miss this. Verse 4 of Galatians 5. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Why is Paul so angry in Galatians and in our verse 2? Why is this teaching that to be a Christian you must also be circumcised such a big deal? It's because it is a direct assault on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, which is the very heart of the gospel of grace. 
Which then means that this teaching is not just some other teaching. No, it is no gospel at all. It is false teaching. It is a false gospel. And the significance of that should be clear. Knowing Christ is life, it is of surpassing worth. That starts with knowing about him, who he is, and what he has done. These false teachers have no understanding of what he has done. And thus their teaching is not just wrong, it's evil. Because they are telling people that there is something that you yourself must do. There is something else. There is some work that you must add to Christ's work. It's the cross plus circumcision. It's what Christ has done plus what you must do. And guys, there is nothing more deadly and more evil than that. There's nothing more offensive to God than that. For to teach in any way that you must add in any way something to Christ's work is to teach that Christ's work is not sufficient. It is not enough, not complete, not finished, and that is not the gospel. And so Paul is so angry because he knows that you will find no joy there. And so he says, violently reject any such teaching. And I, don't, I don't want you to get caught up on the whole circumcision thing. Forget about circumcision for a moment. I'm not too worried about you believing that you must be circumcised to be saved. But this same teaching is very much alive and well today. It is everywhere. It is any teaching that anything must be added to the work of Christ. That there is anything you must do alongside what Christ has done. Look at the language at the end of verse 3. This, uh, this, verse 3 is so good that we just couldn't tag it on at the end. Look at what he says at the verse 3. Here, Christians are those who put no confidence in the flesh. That's the question. That's what he's dealing with here. Is your confidence entirely in Christ? Or is there in any way it is Christ? plus something else. So many people. This is why doctrine is so important. Here's why I want you to be so careful with what you watch on TV and so careful with who you listen to. I want to make it like one of our membership things that you have to get your pastors that you're listening to online, preachers, approved by me if you want to be a member. Now, that's a gross abuse of authority. We're not going to do that. But again, teaching is so, so important and I'm so, so concerned that you are maybe listening to something that is very, very implicitly teaching the very thing that verse 2 is attacking. Christ plus anything else. That's why doctrine is so important. That's why the doctrines of grace are so important. Listen, these Judaizers would have probably said that salvation is by grace. The Catholic Church teaches that salvation is by grace. But that doesn't go far enough. And that's not the gospel. Here's why the Reformation is so important. The question is not salvation by grace. The question is, is salvation by grace alone? That alone changes everything. Nothing else. No grace plus. No Christ plus. No confidence in anything else. That flesh there at the end of verse 3 just means anything outside of Christ. Knowing this 
And then living in light of this is so critical to your joy. And this is why the gospel is so wonderful and so liberating and so life-giving. It's finished. Finished. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left to do. There is nothing left to pay. There is nothing dependent on you. There is therefore, if you don't have Romans 8, 1 memorized, I don't know how you survive the Christian life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should cycle through your head every single day because Satan and yourself are constantly trying to say, hey, this thing, if you were a Christian, you really wouldn't do this thing. Right, if you were a Christian, man, that was really, really bad. There's probably some condemnation for that. And we listen to the lies and the whispers. Meditation is combating that with the truth. No, no, no. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, your week this week may not have been that great. Christian, your week this week, there may have been sin. Right? We're trying to get over that thing with the Lord's Supper where you sin some this week and you come to church and you're like, uh, there was sin this week, so I probably shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. No. No. We're all sinners. Every week. All the time. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that truth is the very means through which we combat our sinfulness and fight it and kill it because we rest in the wonderful good news and grace that it's done for a sinner like me. That's joy. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing I deserved but death and hell, but God, but Christ did everything. Christ took that death and hell and gave me life and heaven, period, full stop. That's it. Brothers and sisters, that's where joy is found. And that's why Paul's so angry in verse 2. And that's why false doctrine is so deadly. And so you must rejoice by rejecting any false gospel that tells you that there is anything left for you to do. That will kill you. And that will make you miserable because it's impossible. Because you are such a sinner. We are so much more sinful than we can even begin to imagine. And we all have some sort of sense of that. Again, the more you go in Christ, paradoxically, the more you become aware of just how sinful you actually are. And that can be really, really confusing um, sometimes. But at the same time, by the grace of God, we realize that God is more and more loving and gracious than we ever dared imagine. But... If you have that, sin, that sense of your sinfulness and you then try to combine that with a belief that there must be something left that you have to do, something left unfinished, you will spend your entire life miserable and striving and failing to do that which is impossible for you to do. No, Christian, rejoice in the Lord by resting in the fact that he has done everything for you. Guys, that everything is so much bigger than you think that it is. We have offended God in every way. Every way. That sin that you committed and will commit is so much more than you know. The debt that you owed for that sin is so much bigger than you can begin to comprehend. And yet, in Christ, gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far. Does he remove our transgressions from us? Right. No sin, no debt, no death, 
No condemnation. Joy. Right? That's where the joy comes from. Gladness. All that's grace. I am now glad because of that grace. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord who perfectly finishes the work for his people and leaves nothing to chance. He leaves nothing to us. It is all him. It is all grace. It is nothing else. Christian, you have to know that. And again, not just say it, not just know about it, but know it. Love that truth. Cling to that truth. Meditate on that truth. Rehearse that truth. And then live your life in light of that truth. Knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. So rejoice in him by spending time with him. Listen to him through his word. Meditate on him and then speak to him in prayer. Rejoice in him by violently rejecting any false teaching that implies that you have to add anything to his perfect, sufficient, finished work. And then be glad. Be so glad that you are in him. And that nothing can change that. Nothing anyone does can change that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rejoice because of his grace. Let's pray. Father, my work is now done. Father, your work has just begun. Father, your work is eternally more important than my work. And so, Father, we ask humbly, we ask now to speak and to work uh, through your word. Father, encourage us. Father, we bring so much sin into this room, and we are so often downcast. Father, help us to put our hope in God. Help us to put our hope in you. Help us to rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, help us to delight in your goodness and your grace. Father, make us glad. Father, I so want to be joyful and glad. Life is often just so mundane. Uh, and there's often so many things, as Mike prayed, just go wrong regularly and consistently. But Father, we can be glad because of Christ. And we can be glad because those things cannot touch these realities. So forgive us for forgetting them regularly. Help us to remember them regularly. Father, help us to meditate on your word regularly. Father, give us discerning hearts and minds. Father, I pray that we would be so filled with true doctrine that we would be able to immediately recognize anything that is false, anything that so subtly pulls us away from Christ, that so subtly pulls us away from his perfect, finished work. Father, forgive us for our desire and attempt to add anything to his work. Father, help us to learn to rest and rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.